0: So it's interesting when, when you start to prepare a sermon you don't only prepare the word but you also prepare the way that you're going to deliver the word thank you dear and then you pitch up on a Sunday morning and the way that you want to deliver that word gets changed by God because of the spirit that is present that morning so that's why just brought me this chair. I wasn't preparing to sit down this morning. I was preparing to, to preach. But apparently God wants to, to speak this morning to all of our hearts. So I got saved in, in high school and in my second year of studies I backslid because of no discipleship. And then I recommitted my life to God in 2008. But the interesting thing is, for a number of years, my life, even in recommitment, didn't look different than my friends who weren't following Jesus. So I believed everything. My faith was intact. I believed Jesus was the Son of God. I believed that He came to earth. I believed that He hung on that cross. I believed that He rose on the third day. Nothing wrong with what I believed. I was saved through the declaration of my mouth. And I was following the sacraments. I was baptized in water because of my faith and I was taking communion which we'll do today but my life didn't change. And I see so many people in church walking that same road. Saved for years but their life doesn't look different. What they sound like they walk the same as those around them. So what's What's the difference? Well, I believe the difference is the words of Jesus that said, it is not just them that hear the word, but that put it into practice. So we're talking about habits. Habits is a practice. It's taking the word and putting it into practice. So how do we go from, from sacraments and faith to a changed walk? And it's through habits. It's through Christian habits. It's taking the word of God and putting that into regular practice. So, a couple of weeks ago, we started the sermon series, and and Marinus gave out bright tongues, and he spoke about about fellowship, because some of you were present, and you heard the word of God spoken, because it wasn't Marinus, it was the word of God spoken regarding fellowship of the believer. And then we spoke of serving, and again, the word of God speaking on how our life should be a life of servanthood because of the one that served us. We spoke of generosity and we spoke of prayer. So here's my question. If you were present, has something changed in your life? Have you started to form a habit of serving, a habit of fellowship, a habit of generosity, a habit of prayer? Because if not... I want to urge you to start, because if you don't, if you just come to church week after week, you're committing spiritual suicide. What do I mean by that? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all the ones that opposed Jesus, could quote the whole Old Testament to you. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi, they could quote it to you. They knew all those books verbatim but they stand before Jesus and Jesus tells them, you study the scriptures, but you don't recognize the Messiah standing in front of you. See, so if we just come to church and nothing changes, we will die spiritually. You will sit in church and be a dead tombstone. That's what Jesus called those men. So don't just come to church. I want to urge you this morning, affect change in your life. Form the habits. Allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. It's so the only way that true change happens is from the inside out. It doesn't matter if you now start caring with people and you start giving money away and, and you do a bunch of stuff. That's just actions. If it's not connected to the Holy Spirit walking, walking with you and changing you from the inside out, it's works. And works are dead. Allow the Holy Spirit to massage the Word of God into your life. And then you trust, trust in God and trust His faith to put into action and you start giving those steps then to be generous, to invite people into your home, to have a prayerful lifestyle, to serve. Because today I'm speaking on, on the last habit in our series. And I almost feel like we can have another sermon series on habits at the end of the year and then we can talk about solitude and we can talk about fasting and we talk about worship. And little. Because there's so many other habits that strengthen us as Christians and, 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 and builds us on this road of sanctification and makes us look more like Jesus and different than the world. So the world can look at us and say, but there's something glorious and wonderful and something that we want. But if we look the same as the world, there's nothing that the world want from us or the God that died for us on the cross. And so, this morning, as we look at the word of God, we are going to look at... Uh, literally, the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, the longest book in the Bible, uh, or Psalm. that book? And it's Psalm 119. Anybody ever read the whole Psalm? anybody do that in one sitting, why? No? It's a beautiful written piece of poetry. It's called an acrostic poem, which means that what the psalmist did was he wrote a bunch of stanzas, all eight verses long, and the first one, every single verse, starts with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the next eight starts with the second letter, and so on and so forth, until they've completed all and started with every single letter, which is 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And here you have 176 verses making up the psalm, and every single one of those verses speaks about the Word of God. It's a fantastic psalm. And if you connect that to Psalm 1, it will knock your socks off. Just speaking about Jesus and who He is as Jesus, as the Savior, and as the the Word. So, God is a compassionate God, and so I'll have compassion on you. And we won't read the whole of Psalm 119 this morning. We are just going to read the verses that I've pulled from uh, Psalm 119, because I want to show you three things this morning when it comes to the Word. I want to show you that. The Word in its totality is authoritative. The Word carries authority. The Word has power. If you understand the authority of the Word, then you can walk in its power. And if you understand the authority and the power is released in you, you understand where it comes from, and it's all from the mystery that is connected to the Word. And so, you can read with me on the screen. It's, it's from the NIV, and, uh, and you'll see that it jumps a bit in the verses, but, but you can follow. And it reads the following. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts, I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands, because I love them. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love that I might meditate on your decrees. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. preserve my life according to your word. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I've put my hope in your word. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Isn't that beautiful? And that's a handful of scriptures from this amazing, amazing psalm. So the, the word is authoritative. So we read there in, in verse 1, and it speaks about the law of the Lord. And when we, who have been church for a while, hear law of the Lord, we probably immediately think of Moses, we think of the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, we think of Exodus and Deuteronomy, and everything that, that encapsulates that part of the Bible. But if you read the Bible as a whole, and you see the meta-narrative that covers all 66 books that binds us together, you will see that the Bible continuously speaks of it being law in its entirety. That means all of this is seen as law. It's interesting, when Jesus speaks, he he quotes from the Old Testament a lot, as does uh, all the, 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 the writers of the New Testament. But the book that Jesus quotes from the most is Psalms. He quotes from it four times. And twice, as he quotes from Psalms, he says, it is written in your law. And then he quotes the Psalms. Now, Psalms isn't law. Psalms is poetry. And most of the Bible isn't law. It's, it's narrative. It's historical narrative. It's prose. Uh, some of it's ap- apocalyptic. It's not law. But the Bible declares itself to be lawless totality. So what does it mean to us? That means that every single piece of this book carries authority. Could we maybe just switch off that air con? I think we had enough rain yesterday. And raining inside is a bit weird. Well, there's a bucket there, over there that we can also just... Anyway. Let's just believe the Holy Spirit is dripping on all of us this morning. So what does it mean? It means that the whole word of God, every single part, from the index to the maps, carries authority. It means that, that everything binds us. We are under all of it. All of it is to be obeyed. There's nothing that, that, that doesn't carry the authority of God himself. And so the second verse uses a different word for law. It uses the word statutes. If you look at what that means, is the word statute means it's it's forever, it's never ending, never ending. So I remember a couple of Christmases back, uh, we were sitting at a table, family and friends all gathered. All gathered, apparently I can't walk there. All gathered, and and I'm sitting, and to my right, there's two men, and they're having a conversation, which I can't but hear. And the one had just gotten divorced. Now, if you ever saw a marriage that epitomized not the blessing, but the curse of Genesis, that would be it. A totally passive man, and a wife lording it over him. In case you didn't know, that's the curse from Genesis. And so at one point, she had had enough of the passivity of her husband, although she had been part of that issue, and she divorced him. So he's sitting there having a conversation with another man, who when he apparently reads the Bible, which I don't think he does, he doesn't see Christian marriage the way that we do it in the Bible. And I'm very confused then about that statement, because this whole Bible... Is about a marriage, Jesus being the bridegroom and we being the bride. Kind of the meta narrative. That's the whole thing. But he doesn't see that. He doesn't see the covenant. So he, he never entered into a marriage as we know it with his wife. They have a civil contract, no covenant. And these two men are texting. And they're telling one another that the Bible is outdated and culture should, should now be the thing that drives how we interpret the Bible. As if the God that created everything that stands outside of time has everything in the palm of his hand, that sovereign God couldn't think of the fact that as time progressed, the Bible would become outdated. There's a, we call it a, a zeitgeist called the spirit of our time. Where people come and they say exactly that and we should take our cultural moment And define the Bible through that lens. Should definition happen? Yes. But a cultural moment should be defined by the Bible. I love this congregation, because we have different cultures sitting here today. And the great thing is that every single culture here today represents God himself. Every single culture. Because everybody in that culture was created in the image of God. So there are fantastic things in every single culture that honors God and we should keep those. But because man is sinful and his nature is sinful, there are also things in every culture that needs to be let go, that needs to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we can't claim, we can't celebrate. We need to let it go. And when that happens and the cultures come together, all celebrating, honoring God, then we sort of see something of that heavenly worship that we read about in Revelation. See, we can't come to our culture. And who, how, how prideful do you have to be to think that, that in 6,000 years that, that we've been on this planet, to think that in your cultural moment, where we are right now, that is like the zenith. We've reached the ultimate cultural moment. bet you my grandparents thought the same thing as the their grandparents, and so forth and so forth. And so we judge those, those past cultural moments. Do you realize that our cultural moment will be judged by generations to come? We'll never reach that ultimate cultural moment until Jesus comes. His culture is established in this new age that is yet to come. New earth, new heaven. His commands are true. They were true 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked this earth. They were true 2,000 years before when he sent the flood. And they were true 2,000 years before that when he created everything. And they are true today, 2,000 years after Jesus. And it will still be true 2,000 years if this planet is still here and Jesus hasn't returned. It's authoritative in a whole and it's authoritative. It doesn't matter where we are or when we are. And then, Jesus comes. Why don't you put that slide up, Amarius? That's a jot and a tittle. I'm going to teach you a bit of Hebrew. So a jot is literally the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So that weird little comma thing. And a tittle is literally a piece of a letter. You'll see to to your right, there's two letters, and they look exactly the same except for the little hooky. That little point that little point is called a tittle, and that changes the whole meaning of the letter. See, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus comes, and a lot of people claim this again that that time um, geist thing. And they'll say, But Jesus came, and we're not under the law anymore because Jesus said he's come to fulfill the law. Well, Jesus came, and he and he did kind of say that, but he he. He said, I didn't come to abolish, didn't come to abolish, it's not abolished, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, but then what most people then don't read or don't quote is the following scripture where he says that I will not loosen a jot or a tittle from the law until the new earth and the new heaven. It means that nothing changes. In this whole book, nothing. There's no letter, there's not even a piece of a letter that you can leave out. That is not authoritative, that does not stand through all time. Not a jot or a tittle. Jesus, the New Testament even says that we cannot change anything for that man be accursed. Everything as God put it out is binding on us. Not even a jot or a tittle is taken away. So the Bible is authoritative. But what's the power? So I started on this as a campus minister in 2010. and And I was a campus minister on tax for three years. And then Hansi, who led the South Downs congregation, asked me to come to South Downs, and I led campus ministry on this very campus, and on Open Window. And in my my second year, uh, the Christians got together, Christian fellowship, and some of their students, Christian students, had a question. What do we believe about homosexuality? And so I gave them the authoritative answer. This is what the Bible says about homosexuality. And not just that the Bible doesn't agree with the lifestyle, but that Jesus loves that person. Jesus loves that person. As he loved the woman caught in adultery, he loves the person that watches this pornography. He loves the person. Doesn't mean he agrees with what you're doing. It's still sinful. But he loves the person. But it's wrong. That was a Thursday night. The Monday I got to campus to find out that I was vetoed and I will not be joining the first-year camp three months later. Because two of the women that had asked that question had a friend that was homosexual that sat on the student body. And so the student body had taken me off the first-year camp. The problem is, as you you speak to, to students, And and I'll just quote the students because that's, we get to deal with a lot, but I'm pretty sure that the rest of the world will say the same thing. They'll say, they say this, that there's there's nothing like absolute truth. Absolute truth does not exist. You have a truth and I have a truth and we need to recognize each other's truth and celebrate each other's truth and and we need to get over the fact that, that there's differences and just, but we can't do that. Because there is an absolute truth. Because there is an absolute authority. And the fantastic point is that absolute truth is not just dead written words, that absolute truth is a person. And the psalmist and Jesus himself claims that absolute truth. They claim the authority of of the Bible. And until you claim the authority of the whole Bible you cannot walk into the power of the word. And the power has a lot of things, but I want to highlight two, and it has two things, and it, and it takes you into freedom, and it takes you into intimacy, and what these people say when they say that you, there's no absolute truth, there can't be because then it's restrictive, and it's spiritually deadening, because I need to go into, into other religions, because all religions have something that's beautiful, and all religions point to Jesus and to God, and all religions will get you to heaven. That's liberating. Just believing in one is so constrictive. And it's spiritual deadening, because then I can't pull all the other things in. The Bible says no. The Bible says if you claim all authority, if you claim this one truth, there's freedom. Freedom. There's intimacy. A couple of years ago, uh, a bunch of guys did a study and they wanted to see what effect uh, buildings and structures had on people. So they got a bunch of preschoolers, okay, like three, four, and five-year-olds, and they put them into a park with a bunch of uh, machines and, and stuff to play with and the teachers in there, but there was no fence around the park. And for two and a half hours, these kids played in the park and they never left their teacher's side. Never left. For two and a half hours. Played around the teachers. Then they put a fence around the park and they got another group of, of young kids in there, three, four, and five-year-olds. And they let them loose. And for two and a half hours, those kids played from boundary to boundary. If boundaries are not constrictive. Boundaries give us a sense of security. Boundaries... Give liberty, give freedom to be where you are, to express, to play, to have fun, to work, to live. There's freedom in the boundaries that we get from this ultimate truth, this ultimate authority. It is when we go outside of those boundaries. So we look at Genesis, God makes Adam and Eve. And he puts them in a garden. And the one thing that is mentioned is the boundaries. Four rivers. There's boundaries to these gardens, and everything they need, not just to be free and have liberty, but to live fantastic, fruitful, expressive lives, is found in the garden, in those boundaries. It is when they went beyond those boundaries that they suffered. And so we have boundaries because we have an ultimate truth, and in that ultimate truth, we find liberty and freedom. but then what about intimacy? Well, let me first look at Simone Weil. I forgot about the quote. Simone Weil. One is only the choice between God and idolatry. That's all. If one denies God, one is worshipping something or something in this world in the belief that one sees them only as such, things in this world. But in fact, unknown to oneself, you're imagining the attributes of divinity in them. See, even if you don't see it, you're treating it as a god. Small g. So what is that? All of us have idols. There's a, there's a great great theologian that says the human heart is an idol factory. Because of the fallen nature, we might be saved but we can still sin. And the world keeps on pushing back at us. And the heart being the of all things. has to go around God. And we have to capture that by our renewed spirit. That's pushing towards Jesus. We can look at other things. And declare that there is no liberty in this. So we find liberty in other things. And we find rest and freedom. How many people get home. They forego reading of the word and spending time. In relationship, but they watch an hour or two hours of series or movies, play PlayStation, be on their phones, have a beer, whatever the case, watch sport. There's a big one. And so a thing, something that is meant to be found in Jesus now found somewhere else. That freedom, that rest is now found in something else it's supposed to be found in Jesus. And then people say, but I don't have time to get into the Word. I don't have time for, to be quiet in front of God. I don't have time to spend. No, we all have 24 hours and we spend it in the wrong places, in the wrong way with false gods. And we bind ourselves and we don't walk in freedom as we should regarding intimacy. So, I'm not going to ask your age. I am 45, and if you're my age or older, then you might remember the original Star Trek. Yeah, you look at it now, it's, it's really horrible. <laughs> For the original Star Trek, in season two, there's an episode called I, Mud. All about Harry Mud. I, Mud. So what Mudd did, is he populated a whole planet with robot women. Beautiful women, okay? He's the only person there. All robots, all beautiful women robots, and they all did exactly what he wanted. All did exactly. Now, to some guys, that will sound like heaven, and to old Harry Mudd, that did sound like the perfect place, like paradise, when he did this whole thing. But then uh, Captain Kirk and and the crew of the Enterprise rock up, and they meet Harry, and then as this series unfolds, this episode, we found out that Harry is miserable on this planet. that's supposed to be paradise. And he tries to capture this, the Enterprise, the Starship, and he wants to get off the planet. So if this seemed like paradise, why wasn't Harry Mudd very unhappy amongst all these beautiful women robots? He even had one that looked like his wife. And if she stopped speaking to him, he'd say, keep quiet. And she'd have to... And he felt that would be paradise, and it wasn't. Lifio, Lifi, welcome. So you can't be happy unless a relationship is real. And to be real, it has to be personal. And to be personal, it means that there has to be pushback. You can't be in a personal relationship and you never get your wall crossed. You can't be in a personal relationship and the person that you are in a relationship with never comes against you. If you're always in control, you never have to surrender anything, you're not in a personal relationship. You are in an exploitive relationship. For the last year, year and a half, I've been walking with a friend of mine, I've known her for 20 years, as she's been exiting an exploitive relationship, as her husband is a narcissist, who's always in control, who runs everything, that pushes down on her and their son, it's exploitive. There's no pushback. There's no give. Ephesians says it so beautifully. Uh, And and, and people always cry, you know, wife, be submitted to your husband. But just read a couple of verses before that, the writer there, the word says, be submitted to each other. Submitted to each other, which means, at some point, I have to give up control to my wife. At some point, she has to give up control to me. That means that some, sometimes what I think is right needs to be let go. I have to let her push back. And sometimes I need to push back and she has to let go what she thinks is right. Now there's a healthy relationship. But you know why old Harry Mudd didn't want that? Because it's messy. It's messy. Relationships are messy. And we get hurt. And then the Bible comes and says, yeah, we know you're going to get hurt. The Holy Spirit says, but forgive. I know you're going to get hurt, but release. Be the lesser. Serve the other. Now, it doesn't make sense to us, but the whole gospel doesn't make sense. You want to be first, be last. You don't have any money, give some away. You want a personal relationship? Go through the messy. Release control. Take control. Be in at 100%, each of you. So Harry misses the whole point of, of relationship, and she's he's very miserable. But some people can't believe that the whole Bible is true, like we said earlier, it's that, that zeitgeist. And there's different reasons, and, and sometimes they'll just say, but it's offensive. It's offensive. It's derogatory to women. Or, I can't follow a God, the Old Testament God, that would say those things and do those things. And there are various reasons to say, but I don't believe. And those are people out there, but there are people in church that do the same thing. You know, I can't can't make disciples. I'm an introvert. Well, maybe you won't believe it, but I'm an introvert. I don't want to preach. God told me to preach. So we've got to be obedient. God says, make disciples. We need to be obedient. Can you have a conversation with one person? See, because what you do is, no, I can't make disciples. It's a command. Go and make disciples of all nations. Come on. No, I can't because I'm an introvert. What you've just done is taken every single scripture in the Bible that speaks about discipleship and you've nullified it in your life. You're going to go tear out those pages in your Bible. You've just put something in the Bible that you say that doesn't apply to you and you don't believe it. And we do that in church. And I also want to say it's okay if the people outside of church do that. Because we can engage them on that. There's a lecture, a yard open window, and one of his major pushbacks is the Old Testament God would say that Israel has to destroy a whole nation. Okay? Have you actually read that? No. It's been told to me. And I don't agree with it. Well, that's found in Judges. Oh, Not Judges, Joshua. And yes, Jesus did say that, or God. But if you read further, just a couple of verses, he then says, don't intermarry. Well, if he says, destroy all of them, why would he say, don't intermarry? You have to read the Bible for what it is. Written in a specific time for a specific people, in a specific way. And if you go back in time, and you you see how things were written in that time, they did it in hyperboil. So they exaggerated stuff. And we can see that as we go to all the writings that was done in that time. And see, that's hyperboil. Go and destroy all. That's not what God said. Because otherwise he wouldn't say, don't intermarry. So we can engage when the people out there say they don't believe in certain things because they find it offensive or whatever the case may be. But we can't, as part of the body of Christ, take things out of the word that is, has all authority and say it doesn't apply to us for whatever reason. You know what that's called? It's called sin. Because then we put something in place above the word of God, above God himself, and say this is higher. My, me being an introvert is higher than the word of God. That's a bigger truth than the word of God. But God says, I will make you fishes of men. Just follow. It doesn't mean if you're an introvert. He'll help you fish. He'll make you the fisher. But we don't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way. Who is obliging. Who is connected with my own nature. But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature. And which is not at all congenial to me. This place is the cross of Christ. See, the psalmist writes, All your laws are true. All our commands are true. And if you read the psalmist and you read all the psalms, all these guys, you'll see so many emotions. You see joy. You see weeping. You see guys prostrated before God. You see guys angry, fighting God through the psalms, through their words. They're getting their will crossed. They have to give up their authority. God is making things happen in their life. They're suffering. What they want is not happening. We see real personal relationships between the psalmists and God. So the question is, if you then take things out of the Bible that you don't agree with, where do you get your will crossed? Where do you have to give up control? Where do you submit to authority? Because the answer is you don't. So if you don't, you do not have a personal relationship with God. We need to submit to the Word. We need to have a walk cross. We need to come to a place at the cross where it's uncomfortable. Where God speaks into my life and calls things out. That doesn't look like he does. Where my holiness doesn't look like his holiness. Where my righteousness has taken a knock because of sin. And the Holy Spirit then comes and he doesn't condemn you because of your sin. As he does sin, as the righteousness of God is then upon you. And the Holy Spirit comes and he says, you are a son of the most high God. What you're doing right now is not in line with who you are. Stop. He's calling out your righteousness. He wants you to walk as Jesus walked. But we've got to come to a place where we allow Him to speak into our life and show us the things that are uncomfortable. Real personal relationship. Lastly, if it's all authority and we have the power of freedom and intimacy that is born from the scriptures, what is the mystery? So what's fantastic is we read the psalm and you read all these emotions. The psalmist, and we read it earlier, he says things like, your statutes are my counselors. Okay. So he's personifying the word. He's saying that, that these pages are his counselors. He says, I lift up my hands to your commands. What do we do when we lift up our hands? We worship. That's literally one of the words in the Hebrew language for worship. Worship lifting up the hands. So he's worshipping the word of God. He says in verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. He's talking about idols. It's a word for idols. And he says, preserve my life according to your word. And what he's literally saying there is save me through your word. He's not As I read your word save me, He's saying, Your word saves me. What the psalmist is doing here, he's prophesying. He's calling out something that we know now, in our time. And it's John 1, verse 1. And the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the word was with God. See, the word itself is Jesus. The word itself was made flesh. See, we have the word as text and we have the word as flesh. Other religions have the word as text, which they believe is the word of God as text. We have the word as text and we have the word as flesh. And the word of text prophesied and showed us what the word of flesh would be. And when the word was made flesh, he obeyed the word as text perfectly. And so, how can I trust the word as text? Because I've seen the word as flesh. I've seen how he walked. I see how he talked. I see how he loved people. And if that is the lens that I look back at the Old Testament, it makes sense. And there's this beautiful picture of a God who loves, of a, of a God who wants to restore humanity. To him. To pull everybody close. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter which creed you are. Doesn't matter what nation, culture you are. He loves you. And he raised up Israel to be a beacon to all nations. That they could see the one God. And now he comes and he says in Peter that you are a new creation. You are a holy nation. You are now that Israel. That is to stand up so when people that don't believe look at you. They see Jesus in the flesh because you believe the authority of the word as text and you live it out when the word as text and you walk in freedom and they see the liberty and you walk in intimacy and they can see the intimacy and they say but that's what I want because the word has bound me and the word has made me an orphan my truth I I I and the word is world has put me out of community And so the word as flesh, as Bonapha said on that cross, then hangs there, having fulfilled the word. In the garden, they come to arrest him. He's about to go into this, this time of humiliation and torture. Peter draws a sword and starts fighting to protect Jesus. And he tells Peter, stop. If they don't do this, the word as text will not be fulfilled even at that place we walked in perfect obedience to the word as text and so we can ask well so we go to the cross and we submit ourselves to this ultimate authority so that's where we get our will crossed that's what we have to let go well where does God do that because, because this has to come from both sides but our relationship is from two sides. Exactly there in that garden, where Jesus, the Word made flesh, comes to the Father and He says, I don't want to do this. submit, give away control. So that there can be a real and personal relationship between you, between us, and God. So I'm going to ask you this question this morning. Are there pieces of this ultimate authority that you've put to one side that you say is not not part of your life. You can't follow this. Because if there is, I want you to take that to Jesus, take that to the cross. Go to that comfortable place. Give it back to him. Ask him to change you from the inside out so you can follow all of this authority, every jot and tittle. There's nothing that you've set aside that you are under all authority. But you don't feel freedom and you don't feel intimacy, then take that to Jesus this morning. And ask him where is the disconnect that you're not feeling the freedom that you should under the authority of that fantastic word? Or well, if you don't feel the intimacy of God, ask him why. Where's the disconnect? where have you not given up and released? And when you've done that and the Holy Spirit has spoken to you because He will, then I want to encourage you to can have communion at the cross, seeing the Word made flesh. Do that right now and then I'll end all for us.